If you have your Bibles, please open it to Judges chapter 19. <clears throat> We've been away from Friday nights for a while because of the outreach event that the high school is doing as well as uh, retreats last week. And if you were at the retreats, what a great time in learning about finishing well. And if you were not there, I would uh, encourage you to listen to the sermons. I think they're recorded. They'll probably update, be uploaded soon. But as you're turning to Judges 19, I do want to start by giving a little preface to this chapter. Two weeks ago, I said that this is probably one of the, if this is probably the second darkest chapter in the entire Bible, definitely the darkest chapter in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's like, before we read through this and study it, it's like, you know how when you watch TV and before the episode it says, viewer discretion is advised? That's, that's what I would give uh, before we start this. Because this is a really graphic chapter. And in my, on my daughter, in my daughter's Bible, this chapter is totally missing. I don't think that's a complete Bible, but that's like a you know, children's Bible. And it's graphic in nature because it's, it deals with the topic of sexual sin. And it is a very gross chapter, and the reality is that sin is gross. Um, so when you see this, when we're going through this, don't think to yourself, I cannot believe the Bible has this, because, well, why not? Because the Bible tells us that we are all wicked sinners, and this is just displaying what happens if we do what is right in our own eyes. So if you want to do that, just kind of give that, say this up front as a preface before we begin into studying this chapter. But before we start, let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word and bringing us back from the retreats and just this week of work. And, um, and Lord, we're exhausted from all the uh, things that we're responsible for. But Lord, may you give us a heart to study your word, to know your word now. And I ask that you give us uh, attentiveness. And Lord, may this chapter shock us in the right way, that it causes us to have a not a worldly sorrow, but a godly sorrow that it forces us to evaluate our own hearts, evaluate our own life, and, the, and force us to turn away from sin and to live a life of purity and obedience. We d- dedicate this night and devote our time to you, Lord. Pray these things in, in your son's name. Amen. If you ever look at the culture, especially in American history, you'll notice that every major issue since the 70 in the last 50-something years, there's only really one major topic that's, that's on the headlines and is always debated throughout these last 50 years. And that, is a que- and that is the debate on how to deal with sex. Think about it. From the 70s, that began the sexual liberation. People uh, had this idea that sex is free and it should be enjoyed, not only confined to marriage, but it should be whoever you want, whoever you consent to. And from there, you see things like the Roe v. Wade, Roe versus Wade, where people begin to think this is a woman's rights. But you understand that the reason why this exists, why abortion exists in our society, whether it's because of rape, incest, or unplanned pregnancy, or whatever it may be, at the heart of it is because of sexual sin running rampant in our culture. From there until the present day, you see the LGBTQIA plus and all these other alphabets that they want to hijack. They are doing all of this is because they want to have sex with whoever they want. And not only that, they want to not only want you to consent with them, but they want you to promote this. this these 
the greatest issues in the last 50 years, and definitely in terms of the political, even with the church, it revolves around sexual sin. Someone asked John Piper once, why is the church always talking about the LGBTQ, about sexual sin, about this and this and that? And Piper's response was perfect. It's, it's because the world is challenging us on it. If the world was struggling with, with downloading or, or, do, or stealing, for example, then the church will, will have to ha- give an answer for it. But because the last 50 years has been about sexual sin, the, the church has to, has to rise up and explain biblically what is, what's God's view on sexual morality. And I know that we're talking about this topic of sexual sin, and don't assume that I'm just only talking about the males here. I'm speaking to everyone. And I know that in our church, especially this group of this size, there are probably people here that are struggling with purity more than they're willing to admit. There is something unique about sexual sin, whether it's pornography, lust, adultery, fornication, bestiality, masturbation, polygamy, or any type of sexual sin. In the eyes of the Lord, it is considered evil. It is a distortion of what he expects of us. And it is a unique sin because sex itself is unique. It is designed by God and is supposed to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. Paul explained this, this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Sexual sin is against your own body. God designed sex for a particular purpose and is to be enjoying the confines of marriage, but sin distorts it and makes it about yourself. It makes you think selfishly. This is why Paul and throughout this scripture tells us to flee sexual sin. You need to be a believer that flees sexual sin. Sexual sin is, is deadly, and if you aren't careful, your heart will be turned away from the Lord. Just look at biblical examples David in 2 Samuel 11, Solomon in 1 Kings 11, and even earlier in a few months ago when we went through the life of Samson, each and every one of them were men of great faith that were used by God for a while, but because of their sexual appetite, they fell and ruined all of their lives. And now if sexual sin can ruin these great men of faith and it can it could ruin a society. It will for sure ruin yours if you play with sexual sin. This chapter is extremely dark and graphic chapter in the Old Testament. In fact, in Hosea chapter 10, verse 9, it, it states that this event, everything from chapter 19 till the end of the book of Judges, these last three chapters, this event is the reason why God has turned his heart away from them. These people were so wicked that this, was, this event was, was what led to their exile. This means that from all the way from 1 Samuel all the way to, second, to the end of 2 Kings, all those evil things that happened in those four or five books pales in comparison to what will happen in chapter 19 to the end of Judges. This is the part of, history, of Israel history that God is not pleased with. And this is the part, according to Hosea 10.9, is what led Israel into exile. This chapter sin, like the culture back then and now in our own culture, is sexual in nature. 
in much of the same way, one of the greatest fights in our day is in our own hearts and the war for purity. And this book as a whole was written by Joshua and is written to show why Israel needs a king, why they need to have to bow their knee to a king, but not just any king, a king that will lead them to a life of godliness to fulfill their part in the covenant relationship that they have with God. Israel did not have a king because they chose to do what is right in their own eyes. So like some of the chapters I've been preaching through in the Judges, we're going to just walk through the text first, and we just draw some applications and some um, just details and explain some, and comment through the chapter. And then I'll end with some, with some application points for us. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Now it came about in those days when there is no king in Israel that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. You notice this beginning phrase, there is no king in Israel. This meant that they did not do according to the word of God, but rather they did what's right in their own heart and it is filled with sin. This is the third time in this entire the five, last, five, last few chapters that we've been doing, last three chapters, the third time it shows them last three chapters. And it's important to remember that whenever people do what is right in their own eyes, destruction is going to follow, is going to follow soon after. You notice a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. There's a little reminder of the role of the priest. This priest here in chapter 19 is not the same priest as chapter 17, 18. There's a whole different priest. This is another story. And, this, and remember, the priests, they do not have a land. They do, they, God did not give them a land to inhabit. They're not supposed to have their own land because they're supposed to go to every other tribe and, and be a priest to them. They're supposed to um, serve the Lord in that way. They're supposed to teach them God's word and offer sacrifices and be the mediator between the tribes of Israel and God. The priest is supposed to work. But this particular priest, who is nameless, has a concubine. Again, the priests were supposed to be people that were holy. They were supposed to be distinct. They were supposed to teach the law, and they were supposed to live the law, and they were supposed to make judgments when people live contrary to God's word. But yet this priest here has a concubine. And a concubine is not, it's somewhat similar to what we, what we think of, but not really. A concubine is, at the time, is more like someone that they would spend money on, they took care of, they had obviously sexual relationships with, but they were not legally their wife. So if the priest died, none of the inheritance will go to this wife. The fact that she's known as a concubine implies that maybe this priest was already married before, that this is his, his second, his mistress, if we use our modern vernacular. This priest is someone that is religious but lived sinfully. Now, I wonder if this was some of you. Some of you probably think this way, that you look at the ministry that you're in, you think it's okay for you to indulge in sexual sin. Any type of sexual sin is not justified just because you serve the Lord. Outward public godliness may be impressive to others, but it does not justify private sexual sins. You need to fight your sin no matter where you are in ministry. Scripture speaks of a time in the future where people will stand before the Lord and God will say, depart from me for I never knew you. And these are the people that do all these, these religious things, but yet they're hiding sexual sin in their hearts. 
There are many people in hell right now that try to hide their sexual sin, but the Lord sees it all. There's nothing that we do that the Lord isn't aware of. It should be a warning for us all to be mindful that religious activity doesn't make us holy. Verse 2, but his concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there for a period of four months. This concubine had some sort of affair with another man and left him for four months. Harlots do what harlots do. Dogs bark, ducks quack, harlots commit adultery. Verse 3, then her husband rose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. He went to her, he went to find her and attempt to win her back by speaking tenderly with her and even showing off his, his ride. You know, two donkeys at a time was, it was a big deal. It meant that he was some sort of high roller. This concubine was, is wooed by that. And he noticed that he calls her, the, the word changed from priest to now husband. And, he, so, and she's like showing off her husband priest to her father. And the father was glad to meet him. Now I'm going to read chapter, uh, verse 4 and 9 just kind of, and quickly summarize. Uh, his father-in-law, the, fa- the girl's father, detained him, and he remained with him three days. So they, are, so they ate and drank and lodged there. Now on the fourth day, they got up early in the morning, and he prepared to go. And the girl's father said to his son-in-law, sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterwards you may go. So both of them sat down and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, please be willing to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And the man arose to go, but his father-in-law urged him so that he spent the night there again. On the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning, and the girl's father said, Please sustain yourself and wait until afternoon. So both of them ate. When the man arose to go along with the concubine and servants, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here that your heart may be merry. Then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey so that you may go home. Again, to summarize this portion, is the short scene between the father, the concubine, and the Levite. He, he's been wanting to go, but then the, the father's just trying to he's insistently stay and just wants to you know, keep them there. And I, I, you know, as a father, I understand. If, if I know that my daughter's going to leave, I'll try my best to try to keep her there as much as possible. And this is the idea here. There's this love that the father has. And it's interesting because the father has no idea it seems it's implied here that the father has no idea that his daughter is a concubine and that this Levite is committing some sort of wretched sin. He just thought, oh, they, they're good. You know, they're, they look like a godly couple. Verse 10. When the man rose to go along with his concubine and servants, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, oh, wait, sorry, I read that already. Verse 10. But the man was not willing to spend the night, so he arose and departed and came to a place opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem. And there were with him a pair of saddled donkeys. His concubine also was with him. When they were near Jabez, the day was almost gone. And the servant said to his master, Please come and let us turn aside to, into this city of Jebusites and spend the night in it. However, the, his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. 
He said to the servant, come and let us approach one of these places and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed along and went their way and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belonged to Benjamin. They turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city for no one took them into into his house to spend the night. After the fifth day, they moved to Jerusalem, or attempted to, and when they got close to another city, uh, the Levite chose not to go there because he, there was a, he didn't want to go to a place where Gentiles lived. Uh, instead, they'd rather go to this place called Gibeah, which is further away. And this town, Gibeah, is a town that belonged to the Benjamites. Uh, when they got there, they arrived at the town square, and no one took them in. And not taking someone in at that time, uh, or not being hospitable, was considered a huge uh, cultural faux pas in the Jewish culture. Back then, when someone hosted someone, the host was responsible for them. Their health and their well-being is under their care. And in fact, in the Torah, it explains that they need to care for those that are strangers. And the fact that no one at this time cares shows you what was the state of Israel. Israel, again, was, was a, is a wicked group of people. They were all doing what's right in their own eyes. It is doubly a, a sin when, it's a, when this person is a priest. You know, again, the priest did not have their own land, so they were supposed to figure out a way to care for this priest. The Levite priests were not given any land. They were supposed to be taken care of by all the different tribes, and the Benjamites failed to do what they're supposed to do. Now, if you remember two weeks ago when I went through chapter 18, I explained this Old Testament uh, Bible study method. And one thing you need to remember or realize is that in the Old Testament, whenever there is a similar story, a similar event, it is designed with a purpose so that people will recall to mind the previous story. Uh, so they, when, in, chapter, in, Gen, in Judges 19, most of the vocabulary is similar to another chapter in the Bible, and that's Genesis 19. That's the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Usually, uh, when there's a difference, the main point is actually found in what's different, the distinctive, what's, what's unique is the main point of the story. In our modern day, it would be like if you watch a movie or a TV show or read literature and they make callbacks or references. This is what's going on here. When, you, when we go through this chapter and this scene moving forward, it should sound familiar to you. It's a literary device. So the fact that the author of Judges is writing this narrative with similar wordage and events similar to Sodom and Gomorrah is supposed to let the readers know that something bad is about to happen. Remember, up until this point, Sodom and Gomorrah was known as the worst city. And the fact that uh, Samuel, or, uh, or the writer of Judges, is trying to, to use these references is supposed to make you think that Israel has gone to a very has become a very bad and wicked place. You notice verse 16. Then, behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from this hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the, of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, Where are you going and where do you come from? This old man that doesn't even, is not even from there, he just has like a place there, came out, finished his work, and he just saw this, this group of people um, standing in the middle square without anyone um, hosting them or being hospitable. So he asked them, where are you going and where are you from? And, uh, verse 18, he said to them, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim. For I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem in Judah, but I am now going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. 
Yet there is a booth straw and fodder for our donkeys and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with your servants. There is, there is no lack of anything. This Levite responds by saying that no one wants to take him, take him in. He explains where he's from, and no one uh, wants to take him in. He even said that his, in verse 19 about how all the supplies that he has. So he, in other words, he's a really easy host. Like there was no need in terms of food or for his animals or his servant or his, his concubine wife. It was just he, he's, he should be an easy host, you know. But yeah, you see this contrast here between verse 4 and 9 where the father was super nice and hospitable and offering all these different things. And there's a difference here between the Benjamites choosing not to care for him. They were in the open square, yet many people saw them and they chose not to do anything. Verse 20, the old man said, peace to you, only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into his house and gave the donkey, donkey's fodder, fodder, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So this old man, even though they were, these people were supposed to be easy, like easy hosts or guests, uh, he still was willing to give them food and take care of them. Again, this just sound a little bit familiar. This should sound familiar to Genesis 19. In that text, the angels came to a square, and no one welcomed them except for Lot. And if you remember Genesis 19, Lot urged the angels to come in and spend the night there because bad things, he knew that bad things were going to happen. So far, everything seems familiar. The people were looking for a place to stay at night and then came to this host. But what's the difference? This time, this old man who's actually not from the city but had property area was the one who invited them in. Whereas Lot was from, well, he went to Sodom, but this is the place that he dwelled. And this old man was not a native to the area, whereas Lot was. Verse 22, while they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let, let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So they seized so the, man, so the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them and raped her and abused her all night until morning and let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. As they were celebrating, a group of worthless men surrounded this place, and you'll notice that they were pounding on the door. They were pounding on the door. This, 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 fla- this phrase in the original means they're flinging their body at the door. This visual is that they saw something that they wanted, and they were clawing away at them. They were trying to get in. They were pounding that way because they were driven by their sexual lust. They asked the man that, to let that man out so that they can have their way with him. Whether it is a Levite or the companion is not known, but it is most likely that Levite, because, you know, there was two, there was that servant person, there was a Levite, he then said one of them, but most, I think it's most likely the Levite. 
They wanted to commit some sort of gang rape against this man. And the old man came out and tried to reason with him. Again, hospitality was a big deal in this culture. So for, he wanted to protect his guests. He wanted to make sure that they would not be harmed. However, in verse 24, this old man wanted to bring out his own daughter and this Levite's concubine. It is implied by this old man's response that he somehow realized, whether through conversation or just noticed, that this man isn't really his wife, but just one of his concubines. So he figured out, and he figured out, well, in that case, if she's just one of your concubines, then she is expendable. Again, this should make you think about Genesis 19. Just 19, 4 to 11, that text, the city drew close to the house. All the worthless men went, and both the young and the old saw the two angels, and they wanted to rape these angels. Lot told them not to do this, but instead have his two daughters. But the men of Sodom didn't want them, and they threatened to, to do worse to Lot than they were going to do to these angels. But yet the difference is that the angels saved them. The angels saved them by blinding the men of Sodom. And that's one of those key differences the, the, in Genesis 19, there was someone to save the, the family, whereas this case, there wasn't that. These, this woman, this concubine, was led out. What, is, what else are the difference? There was no angel to save them. There was no divine intervention. This concubine was taken out by the Levite himself, and she was raped by these men. And the ministry had their way with her to the point where she dies. And you notice in verse 25, this word abused her. In the original, it's this idea of just toying with her, that they were having these sexual games with her. They just had their way with this poor woman. You notice verse 27. When her master rose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out on his way, then behold, his concubine was laying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up and let us go. But there was no answer. And he placed her on the donkey, and the man arose and went to his home. You'll notice that after this night, the next morning, the priest was on his way. You'll notice that this man is now known as the master. And usually when there's a change in name, that means that there's a change in the relationship or some sort of change in status. In this case, the man is no longer husband anymore. He's just a man. And that's just, you know, that's, you know, that's obviously not the case in our standard. He's, is not, he wasn't acting like a man. But this phrase here, went out to go on his way. The implication here was that after this whole scenario happened, he wasn't even thinking about her. He was going to leave. He was, he was walking out to try to go back on his journey. He just happened to trip over her. That he just saw her. He's like, oh, hey, you're here. And he tells her to get up. And he tells her to get, so they need to go. Let us go. Look how different things were. In the beginning, he was speaking tenderly to her to try to win her back. But at this point, he just t- treats her like some property. Get up. Let us go. He tells her, get up. But the concubine did not respond because she's dead. Verse 29, when he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her in 12 pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. After this woman died, you notice he, he doesn't grieve or mourn. He doesn't act, ask, he doesn't, he doesn't show any sense of sadness that his precious wife is, is dead. But instead, he chooses to do something different. He decides to cut her up into pieces. He cuts up to 12 pieces and gives it to the entire tribe of Israel, and he treats her the way a priest would treat an animal. Again, this is a priest. He knows how to butcher, thing, butcher things up. 
In this case, he cut this, her, his, his, this concubine to 12 pieces. He sent it to the 12 tribes. In some ways, he treated her as, as a sort of sacrificial lamb. His, he, he traded his safety for her life. The reason why the priest did this is to call the rest of Israel to, to, to go to war. It is designed to be this horrific and cause them to look at the nation as a whole and stir them to make them realize that they need to do better. It's one of those things that is so bad that everyone in the nation would find this disgusting. And we'll talk more about that when we get to next week with chapter 20. But for now, verse 30. All who saw it said, nothing like this has ever happened or, have been, or, or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel camped up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. This chapter ends with this verse. There's never been like this before. What they saw is so gross and horrific. And he tells them to take counsel. Figure out what you want to do. Speak up. Again, he's not doing his job as a priest. Because a priest, if he understood the word of God, he, would, he doesn't need counsel. He would say, this is wickedness. But again, this is a time and place where Israel, this is not between like good and evil. Israel as a, whole, as, as a whole is between evil and evil. The entire nation was filled with wicked people. And he tells them, consider it. What is there to consider? This is a heinous crime, and they know what they're supposed to do. But they said, just talk amongst yourselves. Remember, this is a time when people did what's right in their own eyes. And it should be surprising that this priest is telling them to, to speak up, to think about this. What do you expect the outcome to be when the whole nation is wicked? He's telling them to think about what, what's, what do you think is the best thing to do? Their sin was so bad that this priest tells them to speak up. And you will see later in chapter 20 how, yeah, everyone was grossed out by it. But that doesn't always mean that it leads them to repentance. I wonder if you would speak up against sexual sin in your own life. When you see it in your own life, do you speak truth to your conscience or do you ignore it? When you yourself are tempted and you fall into sexual sin, do you, do you find yourself contemplating truth and then turning from sin, sin? Or do you just merely feel guilty about it and then move on about your day only to fall back into the same pattern of sins over and over again? How do you view sexual sin in your life? And this is where we're going to get to our application points, just three realities of sexual sin that we want to consider. If you want to live a life of holiness and purity, these are three truths that you need to know about sexual sin. So uh, to our three application points are outline. First, that sexual sin is ungodly. Sexual sin is ungodly. No matter how much pleasure you think sexual sin will bring you, it is offense to the Lord. Whatever, that, whatever you think, whatever your actions are, God sees this as ungodly. This is not the way that God designed sex. You can attempt to justify sin as much as you want, but in the end, it is ungodly. It is not God's design for you, and is not fitting to God's holy standard. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is a familiar verse to all of us. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And I wonder if you are constantly living in sexual sin, do you know God? 
Sin is offensive because it degrades his creation by breaking down his standard of sex. It is ungodly because this goes against what God has made and designed sex to be. And this is why it is ungodly because you're living a life that goes against God's holy and perfect moral standard. And you can't say that you're someone that's separated from the world, yet if your sexual ethics is like the world. You must realize that sexual sin is a mark of ungodliness, and it does not make you a mature Christian. But why is sexual sin so ungodly? Winston Smith from Nine Marks writes this, and I think he explains it really well. Sex is wonderful, but sex intended by God to communicate meaning and purpose It is intended to communicate God's commitment, covenantal and sacrificial love, tenderness, and care. It is not intended to communicate a freedom to do what you can get away with, focus on yourself, and engage in anonymous, meaningless relationships. You make those anti-relationship messages of pornography and pair them with a physiological high, and you've got something really nasty on your hands. It doesn't just enslave a person's time and thought life. It begins to invade the rest of their relationship. Those same messages of convenience, pleasure, and self-focus leak all over your life. They don't just stay on your computer. Sexual sin is a symbolic gesture that God designed for intimacy and covenantal relationship between a man and a husband and wife. But it's more than that. It's also between man and God. And you see, if you commit sexual sin, you see all of those things as of zero value. It's a declaration that God's way is wrong. This is why sexual sin is ungodly, because it makes you be the decider of moral standard that does not belong to you. If you want to live a pure life, remember that sexual sin is ungodly. It goes against God's holy standard and makes you less and less like Christ and more like the world. Not only that, not only is sexual sin ungodly, but second, sexual sin is destructive. Sexual sin... Is destructive. No matter how much pleasure it may bring in the moment, it will ruin your life. Proverbs 7 speaks of the wise man being, keeping their way away from the harlot. Proverbs 7.22, suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one fetters to the discipline of a fool. Until an arrow pierced through a liver as a bird hastened to a snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Sexual sin will destroy your life. And sexual sin is never just, it never just involves yourself. The reason why there's a market for pornography is because there are people that watches it. Each time people support it, either in their views or their money, it's an industry that is that grows because it's based on your own sinful lust. There wouldn't be such a market if people did not want it. And we would expect non-Christians to not care about the inherent value of man, but for Christians to know that and to consume pornography or any sort of sexual sin is to promote sin. Those people that you watch are actual people doing actual sexual acts. You watch sin, and through your viewership, you endorse it. Sexual sin destroys those that you're watching, and it ruins the society around us, and it will ruin your own soul. It also damages the way that you think about one another. People think that, oh, if it's just lust, it's between me and my device, or just me and my own home, or just me and my literature book, whatever it may be. But you realize that that's never the case. Sin is never isolated to yourself. People think that lust is some sort of secret sin that is only in the dark crevices of their own heart, 
but we forget that God sees all things in your life. In fact, that's not even true when we think about the sexual sin. It's, it's never just ourselves. Let me explain this way. There's a book that I read. It's called Wired for Intimacy. And in this book, he explains this way. Quote, many women can tell when a man is mentally undressing them. My students report how uncomfortable that makes them feel when they know it is being done. Women in my classes often speak up when we discuss this and share their unease. One female student said, I can tell when a guy is mentally using me as a plaything in his head, even when he is talking to me. It takes everything in me to keep from screaming. Now understand, this is not just like a male issue. There are females that can do exactly the same thing. Why do I say this? It's because your sexual sin is not as private as you think. Sometimes the way that you interact with one another, the other person knows that you are lusting after them. And you know that they know that you see them as just mere property, just like this Levite to this concubine. We need to guard our own affections and passions. Sexual sin, it corrupts the heart of both men and women. There is a correlation between sexual immorality and an inability to make connections with the opposite gender. It is no surprise if you look at our culture why marriage is being delayed and marriage is being looked down upon while pornography usage is, is on the rise. Sexual sin affects not just how you engage in your relationship with others, it engages those in the church as well. You begin to stop seeing one another as being made in the image of God, of, as that person being a brother and sister in the faith, but you see this other person as just a sexual object for your sexual desires. It is more obvious than you think. You must realize that sexual sin that you commit will affect your marriage as well. There are people that are in their marriage. They don't just marry the other person. They marry their baggage as well. And my hope as a pastor, and I know some of you have fallen these different ways, is that to, to, to repent from it, to, to, to turn away from these things. Before it's too late, this is a college career. Most of you guys are single, and I don't want this to ruin the rest of your marriage. It will ruin the way that you look at the opposite gender in the way that you look at your spouse. And make no mistake, this is how sexual sin is destructive. It will continue to cause you to have these, this regret and shame that you otherwise would not have to deal with if you just remain pure now. Don't fail your spouse before you guys get married. I remember when I was at Grace, we had this lunch kind of thing with one of our elders, and... He shared about his life. He shared about his past and how he, before he became saved, he lived a life of just sexual debauchery. And he started weeping in front of us. He's like, yes, I know that I'm saved by grace, but there are still memories and scars that I have to carry with me. And I, he, he explains, like, yes, he knows that he's saved by grace. He knows that everything is taken and put on the cross, but he can't help but feel how much pain it caused the Savior, that he that in his sexual act in the past, in his before conversion, that he caused so much pain to his God. And that's how we need to see sexual sin, that it is an offense to our God, and it wrecks our life. If you read this account of the judge, the story should offend you. But in reality, the way that you feel toward this particular sin of this gang rape, it should be how you feel towards every single sin. No matter how small the lust is, you must feel it with disgust. In fact, the book of Leviticus speaks of all kinds of sexual acts that, are against, that the God prohibits the people of Israel to commit. The Canaanites, the people that the people, the, the people of Israel are supposed to 
go and wipe out a notoriously sexual group. But at this point, in Judges 19, they have adopted the world's sexual ethic. And I wonder if that is you today. Have you adopted the world's view of sex? Every sexual sin that a person can commit under the sun was committed by the Canaanites. And what is worse is that the Israel began to adopt their sexual ethics. And sexual sin is the reason why Sodom and Gomorrah fell. It is the reason why the Canaanites were wiped out. It is what caused the Israelites to go into exile. And if it could destroy all of these nations, what do you think sexual sin can do in your own personal life? What kind of outcome would you expect if you dabble with sexual sin? Not only is sexual sin ungodly and it's destructive, but it is also crippling to your walk. Our last point, sexual sin is crippling. You can't expect to be Christ-like if you are engaged in any form of sexual sin. You can't expect to grow like Christ if you're engaging in sexual sin. Those two do not work together. This church, in some ways, pride itself in, in its Bible teaching and, and its doctrinal truth. And, and yes, that's something that we, that we hold on to and that we'll die for. But is it true in your life? All the doctrines that you hold, is it evident in your own life? You can't say you believe in the Bible and that it satisfies you if you're constantly going to sexual sin. Sexual sin cripples your ability to fully grasp the goodness and the holiness of God. It doesn't matter if you know the word or all the definitions of sanctification or glorification or every single doctrine, if the word of God doesn't change you. One of the driving forces of sexual sin is discontentment. It causes you to think that you need to keep consuming it in order to be satisfied. But sex outside of God's design will only cause you to always want and you'll never be satisfied. And like all sin, sin is never isolated to one thing. If someone is unfaithful to the Lord in one area, you will inevitably find them being unfaithful in other areas of their life. You can't assume that, oh, I could just have sexual sin and I can keep every other law, every part of God's standard except for sexual sin. No, sin is connected to other sin. Just think about it. Just, just think through. Sexual sin is connected to other sins. If you think of someone who's cheated on their spouse, it wasn't just that they committed adultery. They had to lie about it. They had to keep it from their spouse. They had to, they had to trick their friends. They had to hide it. They had to cover it as best as they can. They're always anxious. They're always afraid because they're afraid of getting caught. They were always fearful. Sin connects itself to other sin. This means that you have to fight this sin just as hard as you fight any other sin. Because if you compromise in this one area, you will compromise in every other area. How do we overcome sexual sin? I'm going to go from the lesser to the greater here. How do we overcome the lesser is this. Cut it out of your life. In other words, repent. Be willing to, to do some spiritual amputation. Matthew 5, this should be a familiar passage to us. Matthew 5, verse 29. We'll start from 27. You have heard that it was said, this is Jesus speaking, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one part of body than for your whole body to go to hell. So what does that look like in our life? What do we cut? I'm not saying like you have to be like a pirate that like has a hook and then you lose your leg and the eye or anything like that. But you know, the, the reason why Jesus used these three is like things that you see with your eyes, things that you do with your hands, or things or places you'll go with your feet. Whatever those areas that you find is causing you to sin, you have to cut those things out of your life. So for some of you, you need to stop watching certain movies. Or for others, you need to stop being with that person. Stop putting yourself in situations where you can fall into sexual sin. Repentance from sexual sin is a call for purity. Make it difficult for you to fall into sexual sin. Sometimes that means that you have to get rid of certain hobbies, relationships, and here's the hard one, technologies, and even lifestyles. Some of you are probably looking at me and like, oh, you're just, you're just being a legalist here. That's all behavior modification. I don't get to do this or get rid of that. And look, when I hear people say that, when I tell them about this usually, what I hear is just excuses to sin, excuses to not repent. And some of you need to get off things like social media because it's causing you to fall into sin. Others of you just, okay, just get another device or, or, or install some app where people know and keep you accountable. Have people in the church that you're willing to be transparent with that can walk with you. Make it difficult for you to fall into sexual sin. This is what it means to fight. In the New Testament, we use the terms as a soldier. This is part of that fight. When it comes to fighting sin, there is no such thing as Christian liberty. You must be willing to fight every sin in your life, particularly sexual sin. Every moment that you overcome sin makes you more like Christ which again is sanctification. And there are means that are feeding your sin. You need to stop making excuses for your sin. And you know, some of you might think, well, I can't. Well, there's only a reason. There's, 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 there's either two reasons why you would say that. One, you are not a believer. So yes, it makes sense why you can't because you're driven by your, your lust anyways. For you, I would say you need to give your life to Christ because that sin is enough to throw you into hell. And for the others, then maybe the reason why you say you can't is just because you're, you're struggling with it. And you need to continue to ask God for grace to be able to overcome sin. This is what the church is for. We're supposed to help build up one another and to, 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 to study doctrinal truth and, te- and encourage each other to live according to Scripture. If you find it hard to repent, you know that God is, is, is indwelling in you. He'll never give you anything that you are not, not able to handle. We see that in the scripture as well, that the Lord will not put, give you a temptation beyond that you can handle. You, do you believe that to be true? That means there is a way for you to escape. Do you trust in God's word to, to act on it? The main reason why people cannot find... Okay, let me just switch it this way. The main way a person can overcome sexual sin. Again, I said it's the lesser to the greater. The greater is that you need to love Jesus. That's the greater one. Yes, the second one, the first, the first thing I said was all about like behavior modification stuff. These are just practical ways in which you can live out the godly life. But the thing that should drive you is the cross. What should make you fight for purity and against sexual sin is cherishing Jesus. Jesus has to be more valuable to you than the fleeting pleasure, and not only fleeting pleasure, but damaging pleasure of sin. This passage, Judges 19, should remind us of how ugly sin is and how destructive it is. 
so that we can repent, so we can turn, so we can flee, and so that we can fight sin. When you look at chapter 19, what do we make of all this? I said earlier that I think this is the second darkest chapter in the entire Bible. I would argue that the darkest chapter in the Bible is the story of Christ dying on the cross for us. Jesus was similar to this woman in similar ways. There are a few ways that, she, that Jesus is similar to this woman. They were offered up by religious men. They were stripped naked. They were assaulted, abused by men, torn to pieces, destroyed in darkness. There was no one to rescue them. They were sacrificed, and they died alone. That's a similarity between the two. The darkness and the wickedness of sexual sin is just one of the sins that nailed our Savior to the cross. Jesus was offered up by these religious people who failed to do what they're called to do. Instead of upholding the word of God, they chose to kill Jesus that spoke all of Scripture. Jesus was sacrificed for sinful men by sinful men. Jesus was stripped naked and was publicly displayed and was shamed. Jesus was abused. He was beat. He was torn to pieces by the hands of sinful men. Jesus, too, was destroyed in darkness. And there was no one to rescue Jesus. He died alone. And he did all of this because he loves us. Out of his love for us, he was willing to go to the cross. He's, he knows about every single one of our sins, but he was still willing to go to the cross. He willingly gave up his life so that we can have eternal life with him. How can we who claim to be followers of Jesus continue to give into sexual sin when we know how much pain it caused our Savior? You want to fight sexual sin because that sin is what caused our Savior to bleed and die. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 11. This is a familiar passage. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor coveters, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the, the, the joy that we have. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in spirit of our God. I know that some of you are struggling with this, and you will have these momentary victories, and you wonder, how can I continue to fight? And the answer is simple. Cherish our Savior. Knowing that Christ died for us and then paid it all should be the driving force for you to faithfully live out your life that's pleasing to him. The, let the love of Christ, Christ be the driving force for self-control, to live a life of pure purity. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us, having included, that, having included this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and arose again on their behalf. As Christians, we understand that we, are, we don't need to be shackled by sexual sin anymore. Because of what Christ has done on the cross for us, we are free to say no to sin. These are the promises of scriptures. You don't need to identify with sin anymore. You don't have to say, well, I'm addicted to any sin. No, you are free to turn away from every kind of sin in life. Jesus' blood has already washed you as white as snow, but you need to constantly fight to remain pure. 
Let the love of God drive you, drive all of us here to continue to live a life of purity. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are shocked by this chapter and rightfully so because these were real people that did these heinous acts. These are real people that, that, that assaulted this, this concubine. These were real people that thought this way. And Lord, we know that just because it's in the Old Testament, that does not change our nature. It doesn't make us better. In fact, we know that we can be just as wicked as these Benjamites, these people that chose to assault this woman. Lord, may you make us humble and make us not like this Levite that they use their religious activities and labels as a way to justify sin. Lord, give us the grace to be able to see the ugliness of sexual sin. Give, change our hearts. Allow us to, to, to delight in you, to be satisfied in you. Lord, we know that the things that the world offers is all lies. They're of the devil. And may we saturate our minds with truth during the moments where we're tempted to fall into any sexual sin. May you give us the grace to say no to those things and yes to obedience, Lord. Pray for all of us that we can live lives that are pure. And Lord, if there are any of us that are struggling with it, that you would just give us extra measure of grace to overcome it. Lord, thank you for this time that we have. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Before you go, I want to recommend books. I know that this sermon is not going to change all of you right away. And I think that's the point of discipleship and being in the life of the church is that you have other people to walk this Christian life with. I referenced this book in my sermon. It's more for the science nerds uh, because this is by a Christian doctor. This is a yeah, Christian doctor. He, uh, he, he tried to explain why, how sexual sin messes with your mind uh, and how God's design for intimacy versus the way that pornography messes up your mind and how it jumbles. And it's really fascinating. There's a lot of like, I, I read through this like a year or two ago just to be equipped and see, like, what happens to the brain. And it's, it's horrifying to see how it affects us and it changes our behaviors and everything. But um, that's this one book I recommend. Another book that I don't have because I think I must have, someone either stole it or I gave it to someone, but it's uh, Heath Lambert's. It's called Finally Free. Um, I would recommend that book. I read that when I was in college. It was really helpful for me and even for those that I was discipling uh, to help guard yourself from sexual sin. It, it, it just really goes with the basic, the first chapter, I'm just to say, the first chapter just goes with the Gospels. Like, do you believe in the Gospel? Because if you don't, then the rest of the book is not going to be helpful. Uh, it reminds you of the, the glories and the beauty of Christ, and that should cause us to live a life of, of holiness. This other book has came out this year. Uh, Dale and Roger uh, talked a lot about this book. This is called Passions of the Heart. Um, you guys know Dr. Street. He was here a few years ago, last year, actually. He was here last year for a biblical counseling uh, conference, and uh, he, he wrote this book. It's basically like 20 years of biblical counseling experiences in this area. He kind of compiles it so that um, just to give us the, the right mindset and really why we fall into sexual sin. And the, rea- and the answer is because it's, it's the passions of the heart. What do you love most? That's what, is what's going to drive you. And this book, in all the books I refer, uh, that I talk about, gives, you, gives us like some tools to help un, uh, uproot those sins in our life. And I just give you these just as a reference um, so that 
if you want to overcome, if you want to overcome this, and there, there are tools out here that are helpful, that can be helpful, if you just take the time to read it with a friend or even by yourself. Thanks for listening, and um, see you guys soon. <laughs>